KCSU Stanford. I'm Mark Molino. This is the Henry George Program, the show about housing, transportation, policy and politics, and a lot more. To the program, we have on Clayton Nall, member of Stanford faculty, and we have on Alex Baca again, who writes on transportation and housing. And we're talking highways. We talk about what they have meant for inequality, how they drive political divides, and a lot more. So let's just get into things. So welcome, Clayton. Thanks. Great to be here. Thanks for coming back. Uh, Alex. Thanks for having me. Again, twice twice in like five months. (laughs) Yeah, what a a treat to have uh, this many visits to the Bay Area and to come all the way out to the outpost here at uh, Stanford University. Uh, so here is the book, The Road to Inequality, How the Federal Highway Program Polarized America and Undermined Cities. I, I think there's a lot of talk about suburbs and what they mean politically, what they do to uh, you know people's ide- ideology and so on. Uh, I think, you know, unlike a lot of just kind of people making up their own kind of political readings, this book is very data-driven, empirical, uh, and... I'd say, in what ways do you think it's most important that people don't just, you know, make up what they think the suburbs mean and what, you know, highway funding means for dividing our cities and everything? Well, what, like, what do you think are the biggest takeaways from actually looking at the data in your research? Well, let me just start by talking a little bit about how I was motivated to work on this project. You know, I think a lot of political scientists over the years and have been uh, motivated by the question of why it is that cities are so democratic compared to their outlying areas, uh, including suburbs and and then and rural areas. Uh, my colleague Jonathan Roden has recently written a book looking at how density is just an amazing predictor of the uh, Republican vote. So there are lots of people really interested in this question. Um, but if you look at a lot of the literature that's been written to date about the suburbs and the development of public policy in the suburbs, a lot of that has kind of given a broad brush treatment to a whole range of ways that the suburbs have developed over time, attributing um, attributing white flight uh, and development of a specific suburban interest to all kinds of policies ranging from highways to uh, the home mortgage interest deduction to FHA loans. There's a whole range of federal and state and local policies uh, that have that have enabled the development of the suburbs. But what I wanted to do was to, to delve in a little bit more and look at highways specifically. It's a, it was a major program. Um, by my estimation, maybe something like a, about a trillion dollars has been spent in present dollars on on uh, interstate highways and uh, related highways uh, out of the Federal Highway Trust Fund. Uh, but but no one is focused specifically on the implications of that specific policy. Uh, and so using techniques of modern social science, I wanted to to delve in and see see uh, just how much highways played a role in the development of of urban suburban polarization, urban suburban uh, segregation. Uh, yeah. So, so I think throughout the research, you you mentioned a few points that you can treat the highway funding and development as plausibly exogenous. Mm-hmm. Uh, which implies that this wasn't inevitable. Uh, uh, different paths were possible, and mm-hmm. I guess that's uh, there's a question. I think people just take the highways for granted. This this is our landscape. Most of us have lived in it a great portion of our lives, but you know it necessarily didn't involve this amount of funding in this way to create this outcome. And I think 
I, I guess as far as exploring the outcomes of that, how like how 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 strong do you think that assumption is that there were other ways America could have plausibly taken to? Well, I think this is the big question that I don't fully answer in the book. Uh, just just how plausible would it have been for us to say adopt a an approach to highway development, maybe more similar to what a lot of Western European countries did, by the way, at a much later date than, than the U.S. developed highways in a lot of cases. Everybody talks about the Autobahn, but a lot of Western European countries didn't do a lot of freeway building until well after the 1950s. Um, uh, so, and so you can try to look at some places like that and think, well, you know, what are some alternative models of what we could have done or how we could have built highways differently in the United States? Did we have to route them right through cities? Uh, what would have been an alternative to that? Uh, and it's a little bit hard to think about that in a historical counterfactual and, 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 and say, well, what is, what is some alternative scenario and what would, the, what would the world look like under that alternative scenario? What we can do instead, however, is we can look at where highways did get built and plausible places where they might have been built, could have plausibly been built, but weren't. Uh, one great example of this is, uh, and I may be drawing, uh, I may be thinking about the wrong connection here, but I believe that you know there's no major interstate route between, directly between Chicago and Kansas City. Uh, I think, or it might be Des Moines and Kansas City, one of the, one of those city pairs, right? And so. Why and so if you exploit some you know, uh, some deviations from uh, what might be plausible intercity connections, you can then try to estimate you know just what was the effect of the places that got highways versus places that plausibly could have gotten them but didn't. Uh, so a lot of the empirical foundation of the book is really about how do we exploit those differences, places that plausibly could have gotten highways but didn't, uh, and exploit that to find out what highways effects were over time. And, and in the book, uh, there's, you know, I mean, I think we day to day talk about the urban rural or urban suburban divide politically and how this has very different ideologies that I think most of us can experience. Uh, but and I think a lot of times people don't really consider the historical growth. How, you know, was it always this way? Were the suburbs always so uh relatively Republican. And there's a lot of fascinating data and analysis to, to see this this growth over time and also how this you know kind of deviates between the North and the South. And uh, I, th I think, was there anything you found particularly surprising with the takeaways uh, of, of how this data actually showed this growth in, in a partisan divide? So I think there are two issues here. One is that there really has long been a partisan divide between cities and suburbs. It's been uh, it's varied across region. Uh, the uh, the move from in the south away from a solid south to uh, the modern party alignment uh, can explain some of the differences across regions. Uh, but if you look at and 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 it's, you know it's rural areas uh, outside of say rust belt cities have long been more republican than than the cities themselves what what highways really did is they were uh, a major jolt to the development of the of once rural areas into suburban areas that remained much more republican than cities now i know you know there are guys like thomas edsel who've written about how the high, the suburbs have become the swing territory in american politics and that can be true. Well, and it can also be true that that as swing areas, they're much more Republican than the cities that they're next to, uh, and and the cities have become in a lot of cases much more blue over time, uh, much more Democratic over time, as a result of these shifts. Um, 
One one great example that didn't quite make it into the book is you know you can actually go and look at what happened when particular interstate highways were built. Uh, so the example that I like to use uh, because you know I'm from Wisconsin is the I-94 corridor in Wisconsin, which runs through this county called Waukesha County, uh, which is now responsible for one of the largest net co- uh, contributions to the Republican presidential vote in, across all the counties in the U.S. It's a major uh, Republican bastion. Folks like Scott Walker uh, hail from this area, uh, and 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 if you look in, you know, up to the 1960s, yeah, it was a more Republican place. Then I-94 gets built in. Uh, there's massive white flight from Milwaukee, which has experienced a lot of racial strife. Ma- massive white flight into uh, Waukesha. Massive population growth, which is almost entirely Republican population growth. Uh, the, the baby boomers, as they're moving into the electorate, are overwhelmingly Republican. Uh, and it, and it's, it, it's a major boom to the Republican suburban vote in places like Waukesha. And in, in other segregated places, like in, in Atlanta, you see these suburban in counties like Cobb County becoming overwhelmingly Republican and affluent uh, around around these interstate highways. And I, I think that leads to one interesting outcome, uh, which I think uh, brings a lot with Alex's uh, uh, insight into the Green New Deal and urbanism, which is despite this increasingly uh, you know, huge ideological divide and people hardening into uh, you know the the hard right and hard left of the of the parties, we're seeing more and more. Uh, the funding mechanisms for highway funding and transport in transit funding uh, is largely the same for most of the last 50 years, mm-hmm. 80%, 20%. And this is kind of just an assumption, a, 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 an agreement that is still in place in D.C. And at least up until now, no one's really willing to change this assumption. And I think that's a big question as, uh, as especially the uh the you know uh the left is now looking at a green new deal as a major rethinking of how the federal government approaches uh how we treat transportation is this 80 percent 20 percent something that needs to be rethought uh and and alex why don't you why don't you speak about this no 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 totally i mean yes it needs to be rethought if we are going to meaningfully do anything green in the future like yes absolutely um you know, I've gone on this like rant in many like formats, <laughs> um, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the big thing for me, um, and I, Clayton, I think your book does a really good job of like illustrating that like we're already putting energy into something, right? Like we already have a program, <laughs> and you can read at length, you know, about how like we don't fund stuff in the U.S. and how we don't have social programs in the U.S. But we have one, and it's our highway program. And I had this conversation with my editor when I was working on, like, the Green New Deal piece for Slate and was, like, trying really hard to shove in this stuff about, like, highways and land use. And, like, you know, I, it was a pretty tortured, like, editing process because we were trying to put all these really big concepts into, like, 1,200 words. And he was like, well, why is this so important? I was like, because we're already doing socialism for roads. <laughs> like, yes. you know, that was, like, my, like you know, my very frustrated, just like, I can't get this point articulated correctly summation of like, we're already putting out a ton of energy and a ton of money to making space for people to drive their cars. Um, There is a political outcome of that. And I think you see the results in terms of that sort of spatial politics. But like, for me, I work on the advocacy side, like energy may or may not be finite. I don't really know. But we are channeling a lot of what we have and a lot of our dollars into something 
already, which to me says that a Green New Deal is extremely doable <laughs> if we just reallocate our priorities because we're already doing a really remarkable job of funding a system. And we've done that for a long time. And I think the downstream effects of that are also substantial. So like, even though we have a pretty, like, I think what someone would, you know, most people I think on the left would consider like not a strong centralized government that's really willing to take care of its citizens. <laughs> you know, I, I think that you can see that like, you can still do that. You can still do that at a local level. You can still do that at a state level. And you can certainly still do it at a federal level if you change your priorities and you put that energy out there. But you have to realize that that's a choice and a preference. Um, and that's one of the hardest things to think about because when you talk to policymakers or lawmakers, they just kind of are like, mm, but my constituents want this. Mm-hmm. So that's really challenging from the advocacy side. <laughs> as far as that reflects, I mean, the book does talk about the fact that when you fund highways versus you fund transit, you might think it's just simply constituents, but there's a lot, there, there's some surprising deviations from that as far as yes. how Democrats and Republicans, it isn't simply, oh, I have highway people, we need highways, I have tr- transit people, we need transit. A lot of times, you know, these parties are going against uh, the simple uh, interest uh, calculus. And I, I guess how, like, what is what is the what should people know about how the parties view transit and highway funding based upon what you might naively assume they, they treat it? Well, I think I, I agree a lot with a lot of what Alex just said. I, the, I think one of the challenges that I think comes up in, in discussions about our current polarized state, whether that's in Congress or in the public at large, is the idea that somehow things are symmetrical, that that um, uh, or that or, or or things substitute for each other. And what I mean by that is, think about. Um, Oh, I think when, when particularly when urbanists talk about urban policy, they will say something like, "Well, you know, Democrats support transit. Well, you know what? They also support highway construction." And one of the things that I I show in the book is there is a there is a partisan divide on questions related to public po- uh, transportation policy, housing policy. But it's an, it's an asymmetrical divide. Uh, both Democrats and Republicans love spending money on both on, on highways. It's just that Democrats are more likely to embrace alternatives to highway construction. And the question is just how much are, you know, if if Democrats uh, manage to win control, unified control of the government, what are they likely to do uh, in response to their constituents when they have an opportunity to start shoveling more money into these transportation alternatives? Uh, The the sad reality is that um, while you might find a lot of Democratic suburbanites who, when asked on surveys or when asked on a referendum, Will will support spending more money on transit, and they're more likely than Republicans to support spending money on transit. They also like getting money spent on highways and having, and, and they drive their cars in the suburbs. Uh, so I think that's that's one feature where I think there's a deviation from I think this sort of caricature of a, a polarized urban Democrat suburban rural Republican split. The other another feature of this, which I, I think you alluded to, Mark, is is this idea of uh, we have this eighty twenty agreement, which has been pretty stable since the nineteen seventies, and, and meaning that eighty percent of the money that comes into the federal highway trust fund is shoveled out and to state transportation departments to build highways. About twenty percent goes into uh, transit and other alternatives. Uh, that money, that deal. To, uh, reflects a pretty considerable, a pretty stable 
uh, log roll between the urban Democrats and the and the suburban and rural suburban Democrats and rural Republicans. Uh, everybody gets a piece of the action. Everybody gets a piece of the fund. Um, what's the net? Uh, and, I, and this is where I agree so much with Alex's piece. What's the net result of all of this? I mean, how many deals are progressive pro-transit Democrats going to make? Uh, giving away 80% of the farm to the highway interests. Uh, and, and is that going to have a net, is the net result of that kind of deal going to be a better transportation system from, in the view of progressives concerned with uh, environmental issues and carbon consumption and all these other things that, that progressive urban, urbanists care about? Uh, my hunch is that uh, we're never going to get there if we keep doing what we're doing what we've been doing. Um, but the system persists, uh, and even in the face of what seems to be horrible congressional polarization, when when it comes time to pass the highway bill, the highway bill passes by massive margins uh, as a result of this longstanding log roll where everybody gets a piece. This is um, in the political science literature. This there's a term for this legislative universalism, and there's a lot and there's a there's a lot of strong evidence for that in the in the in the transportation policy world. Yeah, I felt very validated with your conclusion of like. Everyone likes highway spending. Like Democrats are just willing to spend money on transit too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that very much reflects like what my experience has been working in bike advocacy, working in both like DC, San Francisco, and Cleveland. Is that like everybody really likes to drive and everybody really likes to park in front of where they're going? Um, but then you can you have the people who are like, oh, I'm willing to like see more state like state spending on buses and then the people who are like absolutely not those are for poor people like we can't have those we can't have nice things like um and so that was very validating for me because i think you know again on just like the advocacy and to a degree like the lobbying side if you're trying to legitimately be the bicycle lobby or the bus lobby or the train lobby like you're talking to people who like fundamentally are unwilling to confront the trade-offs that they need to confront to make that stuff work well. <laughs> um, so like, you know, if you're talking about like local or regional decisions within a state and with state funding, like that's, I think why you get kind of these like not awesome transportation projects in cities that also have like major cost overruns because like people don't know how to, like governments really don't know how to manage like the projects. They don't have a lot of experience with it. You sort of see this compounding like effects of we know how to do roads <laughs> like we can <laughs> we can very efficiently fund and build roads but then when you try to install like a BRT line it just gets watered down or like there's mm-hmm. not uh, uh, this sort of core understanding of like okay well then like the bus gets the signal priority like even down to that level of stuff you know mm-hmm. like Cleveland took signal priority off of its BRT which seems like a minuscule thing connected to this like big larger picture of like federal funding but i think it speaks to like when you spend 80 percent of your federal money on roads then you're kind of bad at all of the other stuff because you put it in this marginalized corner and then made everybody fight for scraps and like mm-hmm. you put like the transit advocates and like riders on a defensive crouch where like you know there's really no city in america that's talking about expanding transit seattle a little bit with some of its i think um like they had like something on the ballot to raise money for transit in Atlanta too, but you're still competing with like roads and people who drive and like people who call their council member because they're really mad that they can't park like in front of their house, even though they have no entitlement legally to that space. Well, I, th- I think there are two features of what you're saying that really resonate for me, Alex. And one of, one of which is that this is the problem uh, that I outline in the book is that, you know, we have a, a, a and I think a problem that, uh, 
um, AOC and the other Green New Deal advocates have not grappled with is that this is a this is an example of fiscal federalism. We do not the federal government does not build highways. The federal government does not build transit. It shovels money out the door to state highway departments and state legislatures, uh, who then divvy it out to uh, local governments and metropolitan planning organizations. Uh, metropolitan planning organizations have this special role uh, since 1991 in setting uh, regional transportation plans. Um, and, and they place a lot, and the federal government places a lot of restrictions on how the money gets spent. Uh, one example of, you know, not only does transit only get 20%, but uh, there are all sorts of federal limits on how that money can be spent. Uh, you, you can't use it to pay for more labor. You need to pay, use it to pay for capital expenses. Uh, Marty Wax, who's uh, done a lot of terrific work over the years, is really a distinguished scholar of, of transportation policy has highlighted how much this distorts how we ha address our transportation problems. Uh, instead of investing in building up existing service or, or you know, repairing the transit system you have or, build, or, or intensifying the uh, transit frequency, you instead spend the money on nice new train cars or on transit stations. Uh, so there are, I think in addition to the 20% uh, you know, pittance that, that transit gets, that money is also constrained in ways that uh, make uh, make doing effective transit policy really difficult if you're if you're taking that federal money. Yeah, a good example of this is um, we were using or we were seeking um, TLCI funding in Northeast Ohio, so transportation livable communities implementation funds um, for the bike share system that I ran there. Um, so you need to raise a local match, um, which you know road projects are required to do as well. But that means you have to sell people and in. Northeast Ohio, that usually means community development corporations and private actors, sometimes like universities or whatever, to like kick in like part of the local match um, because the city is so disemboweled. Although credit to the city of Cleveland, they actually went along with my funding scheme here. Um, you know, but we solicited money um, and we got it. We got the TLCI award, which is super cool and which I was not expecting. And like, was really, I think, a result of like everybody involved with this program just being intimately involved with the MPO, <clears throat> so that it made it harder for them to say no to us personally, um, because otherwise we were up against like highway off ramps and Avon Lake or whatever for mm -hmm. like new <laughs> suburban developments. But you know, bike share has been this really volatile world, right? So Dockless sort of came in at the same time, and the equipment that we were using in Cleveland, like. I was like, ooh, I'm pretty sure they're not going to manufacture this anymore. So when you raise implementation funds, that has to be spent on capital. Like That's pretty much what that goes to. It doesn't get spent on planning and it doesn't get spent on labor, which is really frustrating if what you need is like more people to do this stuff. Um, and that's just like, I mean, we're talking about like under 500K here, right? Like this is like not a lot of money. Are there, are there uh, practical <laughs> approaches on how you try to fill those gaps? Um, I mean, I think it speaks more to like, Clayton's point is that like you get in this like weird box, yeah. right? Is like you, some things are easy, some things are hard. So you... <laughs> yeah, it's like you get you get the money, right? You go through the application process and you get the funding, and then like something might change, and like it's much easier to reallocate stuff for roads because it's like all building. Like roads are kind of like capital, right? Like that's like basically what that is. It's like you're laying a surface down. Like you have to install it. Like and yeah, and nobody's going to object <laughs> to uh, once once the road gets built to spending money on snow plows and right. uh, painting and. 
you know, regular maintenance on roads once those get built, uh, but uh, doing the necessary maintenance on really intense capital equipment uh, on BART or anything else gets uh, gets expensive, yeah. Right. So, yeah. yeah, so you have this difference between, like, operations and capital. You yeah. saw the same thing in D.C. or in the yeah. D.C. region. You yeah. know, uh, my former employer, Coalition for Smarter Growth, worked closely with a bunch of partners, public and private sector, to raise dedicated funding for the metro system. It only applies to capital, not operations. So, you know, there's been actually some negative blowback on, like, oh, wow, you raised all this money. Like, Metro was, a, like, the biggest system in the country without dedicated funding from its regional partners. So that meant year over year, everybody had to, like, go back and lobby, like, Maryland and Virginia and D.C. to kick into their pots. So now they don't have to do that, which is, like, saves the board a lot of time. But... There's no operations dollars in that. It's just capital. So, like, that's, you know, that's also really confusing to, like, riders, right? And, like, users and residents who are like, oh, you, we raised all this money for Metro, but, like, now, like, the trains are falling apart or, like, the stations are falling apart or, like, it's leaking and the lights are out. And it's like, yeah, that's different. <laughs> well, like, this is, uh, I think, I'm, maybe I'm misattributing the quote. Uh, but Kurt Vonnegut has this quote, everybody loves to build, nobody likes to do maintenance. Uh, um, um, I think that's less, well, I think, you know, highways have a a natural life of about 50 years and honestly lasts a little bit longer than that. Um, uh, but uh, you know, transit systems require a lot of maintenance and attention, uh, especially in an urban setting. And uh, this is, um, I think, I don't, I think this is something that the, uh, the, the green new deal dreamers are not, uh, I wonder if they've ever had to grapple with any of these issues when it comes to actually doing transportation policy or any of the policies that they're advocating for it it, 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 it this the the, ex, the the examples that you're providing Alex are just a great illustration of of just how difficult it is to to surmount these institutional obstacles to to do progressive um, tra- uh, tra- uh, transportation and housing policy it sounds like there's a lot of kind of bureaucratic hell you enter based upon what is <laughs> what is it what is essentially kind of perhaps just a I don't know if all these implications were thought of when the rules were made, which necessarily favored capital expenditures over maintenance. And I guess the question is, is it feasible that, you know, with a really new mindset for Green New Deal, that this that the foundation of all this could be changed? Or is this is that a difficult ask that is not really feasible? I think, uh, yeah, we're both kind of like, mm, I hate this question because it's like really depressing. Um, you know, I like the the idealistic part of me says that like, yes, it's possible, right? Like it's possible in the way that like if you make substantial lifestyle changes in your own approach, right? Like think about this in your personal life that if you like decide to like cut out complex carbs, like you eventually lose a craving for them. Like so sure, anything's possible, right? But like. I think it's really challenging, and I think that, um, you know, fundamentally, like, we are a country that is built on sort of the idea of, like, capture and then exploitation of land. And so, like, that in some ways feels like very much a part of our national DNA. I've been talking a lot about Sonia Hertz Zoned in the USA lately, which is a fantastic book. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, she goes through and um, without making any... Um, like stated referendums on American land use policy just by showing how different it is from the rest of the world. Like she's able to draw out, you know, how racist our zoning codes are historically and how substantially they favor single family homes. And this, you know, 
ties neatly into highways, I think, because like that's really what enabled that expansion. So we have a lot of sort of like national identity to to work against to, to get that to change. And I think, you know, I do think it's doable. I would like to think that like the like millennials and everybody who comes after us can say like, this is really problematic and like we need to do something. But like, it's really hard. I mean, it's really hard to convince even like my friends that like, you know, like driving is bad. <laughs> like, you know, that like, if we're going to seriously talk about like, significant global warming shifts in the next decade like you have to stop driving and the answer is not evs when you can do a lot of infill development like much more quickly than we can refine an ev yeah i guess i didn't realize just i mean it's very obvious to most people who who look at this maintenance is unsexy we don't do it because it doesn't give you uh you know the war of crowd approval and you know you might as well kick it down the road uh but i didn't realize there was so much like actual lines of code out there that were actually really making this a solid requirement and not just a general trend that, well, that, and, and and that was you know i think it's always hazardous to try to ascribe too much intent to what legislators do in putting particular provisions in bills obviously this is what the courts do and sometimes it's not very clear uh, I think it's easy to go back and you know in early drafts of my book I I looked at uh the, you know the origins of the federal highway program a modern federal highway program in the 1940s uh, which was really when a lot of the planning for the interstate program started uh and of course all these committees that are writing the legislation and writing the formulas that uh, will put the funding uh, set set out funding to particular states are dominated by racist white southerners um, and and they set the policy and when the northeastern urbanites who want uh, urban re- ur- urban reps uh, come in and uh, ask for different funding formulas or for more money for urban interests um, they're shot down uh, and that and that continues into the 1970s. Uh, the, the, you know, the most urban uh, representatives from places like New York, New Jersey, wanted more money to be spent on these non or you know, non capital expenditures for uh, for transit and to allow that money to be spent in that way. But they are a very small minority, even within their own party. They were uh, with you know even with the shift, of, the more leftward shift of the Democratic Party in in the House and Senate, there was not enough support to make that happen. Uh, and so we're you know we're stuck with this. Uh, we're stuck with these uh, provisions that uh, greatly limit highways. I, I think in a lot of ways this is an awful lot. It parallels in a lot of really interesting ways our Medicaid system, which is also a federal program that in which uh, uh, the federal government and state governments place all kinds of restrictions that make life really difficult for the poor. Uh, and transit is an example of of the federal government uh, under the same influences doing the same in restricting what. Uh, what states can do, and and, and just just how much um, the poor can benefit from these programs. I think you see some parallels also with this, uh, like you know, emerging kind of discourse around social housing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think there is we have a lot of self-examination to do as a country as to why we have not been able to meaningfully provide shelter to people. And part of it is our unwillingness to maintain it. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I agree very much conceptually with social housing. I really like it. I think that we are up against a lot and that 
a lot is ourselves <laughs> um, in terms of like how willing are we to become really good at things that we are really bad at really quickly. Um, and, and so it's, I think I know the answer to that one. And, yeah, uh, I think the answer is no. And that's really frustrating because like if, you know, thinking about the idea of putting like putting out a bond measure for social housing in a state or in like nationwide and saying that like okay like now we're gonna fund social housing like is like that actually like as much as I believe in that like ideologically it like raises some of my hackles um especially because like you have legacy housing groups affordable housing groups and providers like who exist solely because the federal government has not been able to maintain our public housing stock and like that is their entire bread and butter. And that's why in many ways, like our affordable housing policy for people is to like move low income people into home ownership and sort of prepare them for home ownership. So like you ax out renters basically and like say we don't provide meaningful rights to renters. And the best thing that you can do is get into a home that you can afford that may be kind of far away from stuff because it's what you can afford. And that for a long time has been like how we handle affordable housing. I am 100% compressing the work of like really great mm-hmm. groups like Enterprise and the National Low Income Housing Coalition. Mm-hmm. But the ideological thrust of like the sort of privatized nonprofit, like how do we get people into affordable housing and keep them stable has been homeownership in largely single family homes and we have neglected like what happens if you aren't an owner (laughs) and you're in public housing and like I believe very much in the social housing discourse but it's gonna like you don't just flip a light switch as much as I would like that to be true so we again we're up against a lot we're up against ourselves which is the hardest thing um and you see the sort of like fracturing of I, I think like that like oh I think I want this right I think you know as a legislature like I think I like want more public housing and I think I want more trans public transportation and then like when it comes to like both making the decisions for that and implementing it like we have no idea what's going on and that's really hard so if you treat like another sector of advocacy is like holding your government accountable which is like not a fun side to be on when you do believe in centralized government and like that's like that's been sort of like personally very challenging for me is that i'm like like i like identify as a leftist because like i think the government should provide more for people and then like it's like what what government the one that we have (laughs) so how do you reform that you you know ostensibly go through the electoral and legislative process the two publicly available processes to us but it's an uphill battle, and I do I do worry that we are very far behind. And, and I'd say that I identify as a leftist who I think has some kind of fixation on decentralization for the reason that I see, and for reasons that are pointed out throughout this book, centralized programs to kick the money upward and then bring it back down are oftentimes captured by the very powerful. You see things like MPOs, you know, disproportionately, if the money came from the city, goes out to the feds, should come back to the city, more and more of it is captured by, you know, highway use in disproportionately powerful suburbs, uh, et cetera. And in a lot of ways, there is a political there's a political will against ever allowing cities to even make themselves work because the feds are the only people that really can get together the money to fix things. But it's very politically infeasible for them to actually make the cities work, especially when you know there's more and more discourse of the fact that at the highest level, especially with the Senate, we are disproportionately uh, representing uh, largely low density, uh, you know, red states and uh, and so on. Cities are, are, are just powerless. And it makes sense that, <laughs> that they don't get the, the right stake with this centralized form. 
Well, you, you, you mentioned the, the, you know, the Senate and the Electoral College as, a, as a, one of the origins of, of, the, uh, of the biased uh, transportation funding system that we have in this country. Uh, and that's, uh, there's, there's really great evidence for that. Uh, one of the, I don't know if the figure made it into the book, but uh, one of the figures that I ran while putting together the book looked at the, you know, the highway funding formula, how many how many dollars come back to states through the federal federal highway trust fund and from federal er, the earliest federal highway funding formulas going back to 1916 and those were if you if you plot the how many electoral votes each state had which is basically a weighting of how many senators uh, they have per capita and uh, and uh, how many house representatives they have uh, uh, and it reflects the overall bias in the system towards our smaller or low population states what you see is uh, that the, that the amount of money that they got back in the federal highway funding formula was extremely tightly correlated with with uh, with uh, with how much overrepresentation they have in the electoral college and in the in the U.S. Senate. Uh, now, how do you overcome that? Um, well, one way is, and I and I speak to this in the book because there is some element of partisan consistency, and and to the extent that there is party discipline. In, in the various caucuses, um, you know, how do you, you, you need to be you need to be ex- willing to accept that you're going to have to get people like Joe Manchin to say yes to transit, okay? And um, that's the only way it's ever going to happen. Um, uh, and so you need to elect people like him in uh, these these states, get them close enough to the Democratic line, in place, in, you know, people like John Tester, and you know, because they're good Democrats and because they're good good part- good members of their caucus. Um, uh, especially on these on these kinds of legislation, provided Fox News doesn't start ginning up their constituents against transit funding, they are going to it's shocking. They vote. haven't already. Well, and they did. Well, you know, they did around high speed rail. Um, <laughs> high, you know, I think one of the one of the reasons for something. You know, in, in, so in the book, I have all these line graphs, which took a lot of time to put together, going through pretty much every question that's ever been asked on an available survey on how much people support transit and uh, highway spending, going back to the 1950s. And, well, they didn't start asking about tra- public transit until the 1970s. They kind of actually there's there's a little bit of an aside but uh Mainstream survey researchers at places like Gallup basically didn't ask any questions about anything touching on social justice until the 1970s. Mm. Um, and, but if you go back that that period of time, what, what you do see a big swing, and it's around the 2010s, and that was, I think, uh, the, the the Republican elite discourse against uh, Obama's high speed rail plan, against his infrastructure uh, proposals. Um, but I think, especially around high-speed rail, there's a, there was a move against against the Democrats wanting to spend any money on these things, uh, and that was a Republican swing. Yeah. And you see, I mean, you saw that in Ohio, where John Kasich canceled mm-hmm. like what would have been like the Tri-C Rail, which mm-hmm. would have been like anyone who has done the drive from Cleveland to Cincinnati, like can spend the entire drive cursing John Kasich for canceling that because it's a really unpleasant drive. Hell is real. It, <laughs> Uh, yeah, the hell is real sign on, uh, yeah, <laughs> when you're driving, like just outside of Columbus, there's a sign that says hell is real. Uh, and, and then it's two signs. One is the Ten Commandments. The second uh, yeah. one is hell is real. You could, you could have still seen that on the train. Oh, yeah, true. <laughs> so, so, you know, but it was sort of this perfect example of like the sort of like, you know, you're right, like this elite liberal or elite Republican sort of like pushback against like Obama national level spending, but also in... Ohio is a good example of like just like the deep anti-city bias that the state has, even though like, you know, there are 
Columbus, Cincinnati, and Cleveland are like they're significant, and people live there. And like, I mean, I've written about this: is that we have this like weird fetishization of like an imagined kind of heartland that like probably doesn't exist, and we sort of act as if those are voters when. That that's kind of a figment of our imagination, and there are real people out there with real preferences voting in a certain way, and we don't really pay attention to them. JD Vance's version of Ohio. <sighs> yeah, JD Vance's version of Ohio. JD Vance's version of Ohio, and then he moved to Columbus, which is the fifth largest city in America. And like, why would you move to Columbus and not back to like the holler where your grandparents lived, where you didn't actually grow up? You move to Columbus because of like. There's stuff to do in Columbus, and he has a career where he flies places, so you have to be near an airport. Like, um, you know, so there are there are very much merits to cities, and sort of exploding our population into like urban sprawl has really not. I don't think it served us well at all. And then you get these like wacky preferences and like weird priorities, and, and increasingly a culture war over it. Yeah, and it. It, I mean, there is like there's probably something to be said about like the stress and exhaustion from trying to make decisions around that, because like I also think it puts like us in a sort of like greater deadlock of like someone's going to have to lose if something changes, right? Like either we like go ahead with a Green New Deal, or we have ecofascism, or we have ecofascism, <laughs> I mean, you, or, or yes, I mean pretty much like that, like. And this is like I, you know, there has been. I believe this is like the like the 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 Rice and Cohen paper that came out recently is that like oh, there's like the eco gentrification. Is that like only rich people's like only rich people can live in cities and like they benefit from like the greening of stuff. Um, but mm-hmm. um, I find that that stuff works a lot better when you partner it with like Dan Kamen's research on the cool climate stuff and say that okay, well like sprawl here is the problem. So if we can like try to make an actual stab towards like equitable densification like we may not have that friction but like you have that occurring in cities and you have it occurring across the country where like this does require like a lifestyle shift and it's not just like showering for less time or like not Mm -hmm. using plastic bags although i think that stuff is really important and like you should take shorter showers and you really shouldn't use plastic bags but like you also shouldn't drive (laughs) like and you know we put people in a position where like they kind of have to do that but or they have to not kind of they have to do that but, like, if we're talking seriously about changing behavior, then that needs to be, like, curtailed. Not stopped, but curtailed. Well, I, I think this, um, I mean, what you're saying about getting people to change their behavior. Well, um, uh, the, I, I, and this, I, I want to go back to something that we were talking about earlier, which is the, the idea that we have, well, you know, say, so, look, if you look at something like social housing, okay, so, there were, and I think you're referring to some of the literature. There, there was a proposal in the. You know, there were proposals during the New Deal era, coming from the left side of the uh, FDR administration, to do more middle class social housing, which would have potentially been more dense. It would have been more greenbelt style housing. If you if you go to Green Greenbelt Maryland or to Greendale, Wisconsin, yeah, these aren't these aren't. Uh, uh, these aren't the most dense places, but they're also not uh, horrible McMansion sprawl either. Um, and they're places that you can potentially make into nice walkable places that are uh, that are accessible. Now, I, I think it's going to be very difficult for any reformers to accomplish anything by pushing for things that are 
you know, horrifically means tested and serving only the poor. Uh, we need to do redistribution, but uh, everything that we've learned in the study of welfare politics in the, in the U.S. tells us that um, that means testing and targeting of programs to the poor makes them horribly politically fragile in a way that just I mean, we might as you, you put the poor in a horrible position. We've seen this with public housing. Uh, the the conservative opponents of public housing uh, back in the 1940s managed to kill off any kind of middle class public housing or social housing uh, experiment. Instead, we had you know, basically horrible housing, public housing projects built. Uh, the Medicaid program. One reason that the conservatives are so opposed to Medicaid expansion, it's not just that they're ideologically opposed to Medicaid. It's that they know that the more you expand Medicaid into tiers of incomes that are more middle income, the, the more you're, gonna, you're going to um, make it a politically robust program. So I think we need to think about some of the same things when it comes to talking about transportation and housing. How do if you want if you want to adopt a more robust uh, socialist or uh, progressive approach to these issues, you, then you can't just say, "Well, we need to throw a bunch of money at the poor," because that's not going to be a politically robust program. And you also sort of you know by doing that um, keep people poor in a way that I think is just like really awful. <laughs> um, you know, so mobility is really important when you talk about the greenbelt towns, right? They all have kind of a nice assembly of like multiplexes, um, to duplexes to, you know, so you can kind of, you could reasonably move into, um, I did a pretty cool reporting project on Green Hills, Ohio, and mm -hmm. I'm very familiar with Greenbelt, Maryland. So like you kind of like, you could move to Greenbelt or to Green Hills, um, or to Greendale for what it's worth and move into an apartment. Um, and then maybe you got married and you move into a duplex and maybe you have kids there and you're perfectly happy, but there are also single family houses for you to buy. Um, that are like they have slightly smaller lawns. They might be turned inward so that you have a shared courtyard and a shared space where your kids can run around, like not in traffic. Um, but there is like a level of mobility provided for there. Um, and I think that that's really important. Is that like people do like having choices? <laughs> you know the uh, you know not the I think the psychological aspect of not needing to stay you know where you are because like you'll lose everything um, if you move is really really important and like. You see the same thing with like transportation mobility, right? Like that's really powerful and the ability to get to where you need to go is really powerful and really valuable. And like you do need to expand that. You need to expand that base and you need like I don't think that we should ever demonize like like quote unquote reliance on like government services. Right. And like that means that we have to like help middle class people understand that like taking the bus is like great <laughs> and you should support more bus service and that, you know, it's not that it's not so much that like. The fact that we've sort of turned it into like you've made it when you're able to buy a really nice car is really frustrating. <laughs> um, well, and the irony there is the more you are out in the, you know, suburban and ex-urban, you know, sticks, the more you are invisibly subsidized by government spending, but in a way that people feel self-reliant because they bought their car and, you know, it isn't this bus that you see. It's just all this invisible, uh, you know, reliance on the government that people feel like, oh, I did it all myself. Yeah, I don't know. You have your 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 swath expansive like personal land that you can look at and say like I mowed my grass and this is mine and I made it and like it's like well you like your lawn is like <laughs> a huge problem. Um yeah, so um you know, I I know that we have sort of set that stuff up as like markers of like you've made it, right? And like that that is like deeply racialized also in a way is that we have systemically denied that to people who are not white and like 
that is hugely, hugely difficult to wrangle with. And like, I want to be sympathetic to it. You you make it when you make it to a largely white neighborhood. Yeah. I mean, I think also like I've talked about this before is that we've made sort of exclusion the most attractive thing of all. And so like when, when you get to the point that you can be in a neighborhood that says like, no, no, we're full. Like that is in many ways aspirational to people. Cars are aspirational to people. Single family homes are aspirational. We've made those like signifiers of like doing well in America. And that sucks. <laughs> I mean, it, it just, you know, because that stuff is like, it's just, you know, I, I think we, we can see the effects of that. Like environmentally, like if you want to talk on like the pure climate standpoint, like it's it's really bad, right? It's like really, really bad to have people sprawled across the country driving to get to A to B. Like that's really bad for the environment. It's really bad for public health. Um, if you want to talk about like, okay, well, maybe people deserve like a little bit of land then like you don't deserve it in a cul-de-sac formation (laughs) like the spatial configuration of that like goes back to that sort of like environmental problem the ecological problem like or the health problems of that and so like you know I am sympathetic to what people feel like they deserve and like I think that you know there are plenty of older especially like inner ring suburbs in America like when we talk about the suburbs are we talking about like our contrived notion of the suburbs or are we talking about exurban sprawl like my issue is like generally with exurban sprawl um so there are good examples of like densely packed like suburbs like silver spring maryland like it's a good example of like arlington virginia you have these like walkable suburbs that are close to transit the rosslyn boston corridor is heralded as like good suburban planning because it's dense around transit corridors and then steps back in a way into neighborhoods that have now refused to add more housing. They're exclusive themselves as well. And houses sell for $700,000, you know, outside of D.C. So, um, you know, we're in this like it's just like it feels like totally, totally, totally out of whack. Um, And I think that it does need to respond to like, you know, that base building in some ways does need to pick up people who think that they have made it and see themselves as saying like, okay, like, I need to now protect everything that I have by just saying no. And, like, I think you see that reflected in the SB50 discourse. I think you see that reflected, you know, Henry Gabar had a great piece in Slate today about Mm -hmm. the whole gerontocracy thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, Yeah. yeah, I think a lot of people are not, you know, his closing line was really great because, like, honestly, I think a lot of people are not necessarily looking for socialism. They're looking for the America that their parents had. And that's not free from its problems, but the idea that you might be able to buy a house, <laughs> it's pretty nice. <laughs> yeah. So I have a thought as far as kind of how I approach a lot of the discourse on the left, because I think there's in a lot of cases when you have when you have the left stacked against it in terms of power, it can fight back by having a clear and self-righteously correct and you know, just you know, uh, idea that it fights for, uh, and I think that in housing and spatial justice, it's incredibly muddled. And I spend more time uh, fighting and arguing with other leftists about different models of why urbanism just doesn't get it. I think this can be everything from talking to people. It's like you don't understand. You know, poor people can't. You know, 
they have their beaters and we they need their $400 car to be parked in the city. And I think, yeah, the 80% funding for cars, that's necessary. We need to grow the whole pie, you know, put more money into everything, but don't take away from cars. That's just going to hurt poor people. You have people like the Matt Brunig types who will say, you know, it's very easy to to solve all kinds of pollution. We just need to do it the the sensible, rational way, which is electrify all cars. It's easy, solved problem. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, until you have a cold snap in Fargo, North Dakota, and try to drive forty miles, then it's not really feasible. Yeah, and, um, and it doesn't incorporate all the amount of invisible infrastructure that goes in to support this kind of. normalize suburban houses. And then you talk to people say like, oh, you know, what we need to do is spread out capital and jobs everywhere and not have these big cities. They're they're too capitalistic. And I feel like, boy, it's like I feel like it's it's not a welcome territory for urban leftists to try to say that there is a necessity to make our cities work for the environment and just for uh, all ideas of justice. And I just don't know if there's much thought from uh, from either of you as far as what is it like to really stake out the space and fight back against other forms of, of kind of leftist strains that are very hostile to it. I mean, this is my whole, like, I, I like... Every week I'm like, urban leftism is in retreat. I'm also not sure if we ever meaningfully had it, which is really frustrating. I think you probably saw some uh, like positive strains of it. But fundamentally, I mean, I think that the people who are in charge of our cities have spent a lot of time making them as attractive to suburbanites as possible, especially in post-war America. Um, and so, you know, we give tax breaks to things and we sort of build amenities that reflect what we think that suburbanites would like to see. Um, mm-hmm. That's, you know, I think there's a really, there's a sort of like robust critique of the festival marketplace school of planning mm-hmm. um, that like I find somewhat charming because it gets at that. But um yeah, I think it is really, like, it's really tough. Like, these lines are very clear to me. And I've articulated, again, in a couple of places, my whole, like, highway advocacy was a black swan kind of thing, which is that, like, you know, we had this big fight against urban renewal. And the only way to stop a highway is to say no to it and to fight really hard and just to, like, nimby the hell out of that highway. And, like, everybody's a nimby about something, right? Like, I, I too, am a nimby about highways. <laughs> like, I agree with that. But that doesn't necessarily translate well when you're talking about other stuff because that sort of, if you want that great promise of cities where you can have that kind of mobility and it is just and equitable, that requires saying yes to a lot of stuff. And fundamentally, that requires saying yes to more people, even rich people. Hopefully you tax them a lot to provide services and you have a robust middle class tax base that you can use to provide services like we haven't quite closed the loop on that and now we have these really now we've turned cities into these really like contested spaces and that discourse like is i think really toxic <laughs> well I, I, yeah so this is actually the the dilemma of uh, how do cities in our in our system of home rule and uh, state you know under the um, the Dillon rule of states having uh, dominance over cities and basically giving them no discretion. Uh, you know, how do cities uh, adapt? Well, they adapt by doing all the things that Alex just said. They uh, try to attract the middle class uh, as consumers and as home buyers. Uh, they try to attract uh, upper income people with no kids who provide revenue and no demands on services. They try to attract affluent retirees to live in condos in the, in the central city. 
uh, my entire uh, uh, undergrad urban politics class, which is called po- Political Power in American Cities, is, is built around this theme of these dilemmas that urban or, or that face uh, people respond the the urban leaders. Uh, they have to bring in capital to fund the things that are going to be good for people overall, including progressive social programs that they want to do. And in doing so, they must make themselves attractive to the middle and upper classes that have the money. Um, or they need to get their state governments and these suburbanites to just uh, somewhat against their own interests, uh, give them a lot of money uh, without uh, through state programs or, or get money from the federal government. Um, and this is, uh, um, I think there there is a, I, I, what, I, what I'm detecting in our conversation is that uh, and, and uh, there's there's a kind of sweet spot uh, that between uh, turning uh, our cities into Hong Kong or Manhattan and uh, a place like Arlington, Virginia, and a place that's sprawling and uh, McMansiony, uh, and I think most of uh, you know I self-identify as a Yimby. Um, uh, I've been in, I've been attached to folks working in the Yimby movement here in the Bay Area a bit. Uh, I've gotten into a few fights with folks on the other side over the last few years. Uh, but but you know what, what do you hear from people in Palo Alto? Which well we're already built out, which we're not. Uh, we don't want to Manhattanize. Okay, the 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 slippery slope fallacies that are used in these debates are pretty extensive. Uh, and and you, you of course hear this a lot in in San Francisco as well. Uh, and and in, and in arguing against Manhattanization, you 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 find suburban. Often suburban Democrats who will you know retweet things from Bernie Sanders while also opposing restrictions on parking um, and and opposing construction of public housing, you'll you'll hear them adopt a class a class based argument that uh, um, uh, almost a Marxist based argument, which is you know we have you know poor homeowners we're going to just get wiped out by this uh, ca- these capitalist investors who are going to come in and Manhattanize our town and. And uh, gentrify us. Um, well, uh, there is that a legitimate concern. I don't know that it is, but there is. Um, uh, developers want a better deal. I mean, the SB fifty would have given them a better deal for certain types of development. Uh, there, so there, you know, there. I think there is a for even among us Yimbies, there is a um, there is a sweet spot of urbanism that I think is the kind of place that we like. Um, I, you know, I personally, I would never want to live in Manhattan. I would want to live in Arlington, Virginia. I would want to live in, you know, I would want to live in some more walkable neighborhoods that with a somewhat suburban character, uh, where I don't have to drive, have, maybe have more than one car. Um, that's uh, so. Where exactly is that line where people get the kinds of high quality services that they want? Where where urban leaders can be in support redistributive programs um, without going off uh, into a one one horrible equilibrium or another? That's real. It's really challenging. And I think um, you know Richard Schreiger's City Power is a book that I talk about often, and I mm-hmm. think you know it does a remarkable job of making the argument that like in sort of like that you know tax-based sort of like arms race like we've started doing like increasingly stupider stuff like (laughs) stadiums and Mm -hmm. just kind of giving out like you know tax breaks to like hotels that probably don't need it and like you know we've done some weird stuff in cities to attract amenities and employers that are realistically looking for like a workforce and a customer base that they might actually just 
pay to be there, but if they get a break, they're going to take it. Um, so I like very much, you know, Schrager's approach to this, which is like, you know, pay for basic services. Like you do need a tax base and you do need like it is kind of a chicken or an egg problem. But like I think about this a lot with living in Cleveland where like, you know, your like mail kind of doesn't show up sometimes. And like my street wasn't really paved <laughs> like you know like um and so 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 like do you know providing some of those like really basic services like that might be worth trying you know i saw it might be worth trying to provide some basic services to people like, right you know right, like, decent schools decent and uh, schools. instead of a you know instead of a gigantic dome stadium right right um, i mean how many decent teachers could you hire with the amount of money you spend on a lousy stadium with for horrible football team yeah and it seems in some ways like we haven't really tried that right like we we've tried a whole bunch of things and we've contorted ourselves to do a whole bunch of different like you know and 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 to to that degree i actually get i make fun of like harvey mollick's growth machine a lot because i think fundamentally it's a pretty like goofy paper when you get to the end of it because his conclusion is like we should just stop everything because everything is fine for me um and like I, I don't like that line of argument, but I think he does a really good job of explaining sort of that like what Jane Jacobs called cataclysmic growth, which is like this sort of like sense of like things are like out of control and overwhelming and they aren't built for people who might actually use them. I am very sympathetic to that. Um and I am sympathetic to like these sort of freakouts around growth when you see them grounded in that but to me like you do have to grow and like you can't shut that off because like all that you get when you do that is people who are already privileged just kind of exploiting that and being able to win and so if we really want to talk about redistribution then that does require growth maybe treating it sensitively maybe being more thoughtful about it maybe saying we don't do stadiums but we do pave roads and we do care about schools and we care about food access and nonviolent policing i don't know um so i i think it's you know there are some really basic things we haven't tried yet and it's it it is frustrating to me you know to go back to mark's point about like where is the where is there an urban leftism it is it is frustrating to me to see that like we can't in some ways look at in many ways what the Black Panthers were talking about providing at like a sort of community based level in Oakland. We have not managed to work that up to like actual government policy. <laughs> I, I think you know one thing I want to say is like I you talk about growth. I as as a Georgist, I would say one thing. <laughs> one, one you thing, would <laughs> one thing that would would make me say is like I think we don't we have we have kind of a bunch of built in assumptions of everything works as long as you grow at this rate. I think mm-hmm. we need to have cities that can grow at the rate we expect. We need cities that can be stable. We need cities that grow very fast. We need cities that shrink without causing immense suffering. And I think we do very few of those things. We can do a standard amount of growth that meets our projections of paying for pensions and paying for the infrastructure at the wage. But it's we don't normally deal with the fact when things go wild, how do we deal with our resources and how do we share? Because I think cities are notable in that you need to be able to share to make them work in all sorts of strange situations. I think you talk about just exurban sprawl, it, it, it works very well with the kind of atomized, you kind of set it up, you let it go, and everybody kind of knows the program and you don't need to learn how to share. And I just think if there is a leftist vision for urbanism, I think it's the idea that cities should be open to all takers and we need to learn to share. And that's incredibly hard. And to say that people should give up an urbanism and just try to make sustainable exurbs 
for all time because we can't learn to share. I can see where that cynicism comes from, but I definitely say there is a just message. You know, we have cities. We need to provide services for all people universally, and, you know, they need to be for everybody. And I think that is very different than what we see in any kind of discourse today. Yeah, I mean, Twitter has now decided that, like, dunking on urbanism is a (laughs) worthwhile use of its time. And, like, I'm all here for, like, a good Twitter spot, but, like, you know, either, like, it's it's not, like, I guess the thing that gets me is that, like, it's not like people just go away, right? Like... You have people who, you know, either you live in a city or you're first you're forced further out. I mean, you know, you may be approaching in the Bay Area somewhat exclusively like this kind of like bending back of like it is not too expensive to live here. But people are still going to see this place as sort of like a place of opportunity and a place of mobility in a way that they won't in other parts of the country. And for some people, that's actually like a like it is like a personal safety thing that they may not want to live where they grew up and i think that you know if you limit or curtail growth again you just get like the people who are already winning like continue to win and so like i Mm. think like when you know my job my title is housing program organizer i work for an advocacy organization and i feel very strongly that you know the dc region like needs to like make space for people and I think that the Bay Area should make space for people too and you know I certainly have my personal anecdotes about why I think that that's important but fundamentally like I know that like people don't just vanish right they don't if they don't move to your city they don't just go away they just go somewhere that actually might be worse for them and it might be inconvenient in that they have like a longer train ride or it actually might be like you know they may be susceptible to a level of harm that I'm just, like, not comfortable, like, you know, risking that, like, somebody mm. should be put in a situation that then might be, like, dangerous or exploitative because they can't be close to what they need. And so then you get, like, you know, I, I feel strongly about that. <laughs> and and so, you know, the growth question is tough. I mean, I think historically this country has, you know, it treated highways as growth, right? We said that this is a sort of great American promise and, like, we can grow and we can build. And, like, I disagree with that type of growth. There are types of growth that I disagree with. But, um, you know, yeah, you need to make space for people. And just saying that, like, oh, no, no, we're too full. Like, you don't just people don't just vanish. <laughs> the uh, I think you know, one thing that I think the Yimby movement uh, in particular needs to grapple with is, is, uh, you know, what kind of housing do people want? And, and what, you know, what kind of housing are they going to spring for? Um uh, uh, and you know, there's you know, there's discussion about the missing middle in housing. Uh, now, uh, what what what's happened in places like Palo Alto and most of the Central Peninsula? What we see is that this middle income, what was middle income housing, these old craftsmen, these Eichlers, which, you know, honestly, were just like you know, you know, they're working, you know, working <laughs> middle class housing that now have suddenly become iconic architectural <laughs> emblems because they, because uh, really rich people can aren't the only people who can afford to live in them anymore, um, or buy them, uh, and you know, so they become uh, uh, historical landmarks. Um, uh, but the, the you know the, the missing middle is it has. We, we we know how it became went missing. It went missing because uh, places like Palo Alto aren't allowing construction of any housing like that anymore. Now the question is, where would you actually build it? Well, you know, there there is room for construction of townhomes, condos, other types of housing that is more of this kind of Arlington, Virginia type housing uh, that. Um, 
that that just isn't being built in 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 places like the peninsula. Uh, it does not necessarily require construction of high rises. There's so much opportunity to do exactly the kind of infill development that that you were talking about earlier, Alex. Um, uh, and, I, I, and, I, and I kind of wish, you know, looking at the, the big debate over SB 50 and the, 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 the drowning of SB 50 in the bathtub by the Senate leadership and Governor Newsom, um, you know, this was a um, that this was a good example of, you know, is it, would there be a housing bill where, say, you could you could pull off an incremental improvement, something like uh you know, this, you know, this provision in the bill to, or in, I don't know if it was in 50 or if it was in another bill, uh, legalizing quadplexes. That was or, in 50, yeah. It was in 50, right? Okay, so, or maybe triplexes, okay? Like, just blanket legalization of that, of or even duplexes in, 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 in banning R1 housing. Um uh, this is uh, or, you know, setting the floor to be higher. Uh, I think this is a way to start to fill in that missing middle uh, in a way that doesn't instantly act- activate um, activate the Demi opponents. But I mean, what I've what I've observed, and I think anybody working in this world has observed, have, who has gone to a meeting, note, 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 notes is that. Um, the NIMBYs, and uh, I mean, I know that's a term of disparagement, but um, have a remarkable ability to move goalposts anytime uh, any kind of development proposal is, is brought forward. I mean, we saw this here in Palo Alto around this program called the project called the Maybell Project. It was senior housing, it would have been 60 units of housing in a place that frankly was already sort of already being developed. It was very commensurate with the surrounding development. Uh, it would have filled in an orchard near some people's houses, uh, and the entire neighborhood mobilized and was ginned up by by a few city leaders, including our current mayor. Um, uh, and uh, 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 and and the project was killed killed in a referendum, even though the city council voted nine zero for the project. And that was uh, I mean, it's honestly a, a quite innocuous example of the kind of urban urban ish infill that what that 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 would provide housing in places like this um so um i i while while i think some incremental approaches are needed uh uh and and i think sb50 maybe really really activated a lot of people's re- activated a lot of reaction uh um it, it's hard to know what would ever satisfy satisfy the suburban nimbys i'm not sure that anything ever will it won't like that's the thing <laughs> that's the thing that kills me is or that, like... where they'll they'll at least not not uh not be organ not organize or, or or get angry enough to oppose it yeah like like, like well, well honestly I, I think that some i think that uh you know folks like lydia Koo and uh you know the, this liberal liberal uh susan kirsch a liberal livable california she's actually retiring today so, from from her position, yeah, it's too. Well, she too, won, so um, <laughs> she's retiring on a high note. Yeah. Uh, the um, uh, the um, yeah, you know, if you can go on a vacation in Greece and let the Democratic Caucus kill kill the kill the housing legislation for you while you're you're supposed to be lobbying against it, well, that just shows you just how how much of a chance Scott Weiner had of getting the legislation he wanted. So here's a question I have for you. Just in, as far as I like, guess suburban space, how do you feel? I mean, I when people say Palo Alto is you know a suburb, it to me never feels quite like what a suburb should mean, which is a place where mm-hmm. you're on a periphery on near marginal land, in which people have strong property rights because more or less they're kind of it's it's kind of up for them to kind of survey the frontier and Palo Alto is not that every plot of land is worth millions of dollars which to me makes it sound like 
this is in no, no uncertain terms just a very very bad city and like it isn't is, is a deeply urban place based on the land values but it pretends that it has a suburban feel and thus a suburban ethos which I think is this kind of ability to exclude and this ability of strong property rights for landowners, which includes, you know, controlling the political future of your own neighborhood as well. I, I, where do you think Palo Alto and other cities in the peninsula really feel on kind of what does it mean to be a suburb? <laughs> I don't know if you have strong feelings on that. Well, but. I, <laughs> I'm, I'm taking off my academic hat now and uh, uh, and just I, I will say that, you know, I, I, let me just, uh, you know, for full disclosure, you know, I spent uh, almost a big chunk of uh, fall 2016 helping elect Adrian Fine to the city council here in Palo Alto and helping helping some of his allied candidates, including Mayor uh, Ness and uh, Greg Tanaka, who have uh you know, within the limits of their ability in a place like Palo Alto, I've actually tried to pass some effective housing legislation to provide more dense housing in some places. Um, uh, uh, so I think there is a, um, I, I think with all, in all places in transition, whether that's places like Palo Alto or places that are uh, gentrifying, uh, neighborhoods are changing. Na- when neighborhoods change, uh, there's, a, there's, there's strong reaction. Uh, the, uh, the reality that I think a lot of the long, long-time uh, local residentialists, as they call themselves, uh, ha- haven't haven't grappled with is they uh, they haven't accepted that they are actually in a major commercial capital of the country, and uh, this is a we are we are a major major corporate hub uh, that. And, and that and, and our policymaking should reflect that. Um, now they would like that not not to be so. I mean, they they of course made their money in tech when before it became as as hot as it is now, and now they are opposed to any more tech being built. Um, I mean, honestly, like met several of the more nimby members of the city council in Palo Alto are themselves tech executives. Um, uh, but they, they, you know, they're from an earlier, earlier generation, earlier wave. That um, and, and so this is. Um, uh, I think uh, you know the 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 terminology that uh, you know Lydia Koo on the Palo Alto City Council uses is she she refers to Palo Alto as a village. Well, that's just nonsense. Palo Alto is not a village. It's a small city with a fair amount of density and major 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 a major research institution and major companies that has to maintain its quality of life by by acknowledging that it is actually a city. No, it's not San Francisco South, but it is a city. And the, the the orchards went away a long time ago. I mean, right. that like the the sort of like that mythology was like alive and well when I moved to San Francisco in 2014. You know, I I worked with a number of people who grew up in the peninsula and sort of were like, oh, this used to be like you know cherry orchards or whatever mm-hmm. you grow. To, I don't know. And it's like that's not the reality anymore. And um, you know, I think we you know you can debate whether or not that in itself is good, but fundamentally, like this is something <laughs> and it's not that. And, you know, I, I do kind of want to like talk a little bit more about like what satisfies NIMBYs. Cause I think there's not like you, you don't get that, but you know, that's kind of like, why is something like SB 50 important is that like, it just is changing like what we say is okay in our laws. And right now we say that fourplexes are not okay because we have our one zoning. So like, you know, this idea that like, oh, fourplexes, like it's not like it's a gigantic tower. Well, those are illegal too. <laughs> so um, I, I think there is like, you know, I do think that Yimby should be mindful of like not everybody wants to live on like the 32nd floor of something. I am totally sympathetic to that. Like 
I own a single family house in Cleveland, Ohio for mm-hmm. for reasons, right? Like, I mean, partially because it was like affordable for me to buy, but also because like, you know, having a porch is nice. Having a backyard is nice. Um, and I could afford it. It was close to stuff that I did. So I bought it. Um, I think a lot of people think like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting about like SB50 is that like, it would not have noticeably done that much. But that's not like why it's good or bad, right? It's just like changing sort of what the ground rules are. Um, and I think that our ground rules should not enshrine single family homes. Like they should allow you to build more densely than that, given where we are in the world with a climate crisis, with like an affordability crisis. I think that's really important. But I also, you know, you're right. NIMBYs are really, really good at moving goalposts. <laughs> um, and something that I've thought a lot about is that, like, you know, NIMBYs get sort of like, oh, like, you're allied with developers, and so it's hard to trust you. Mm-hmm. And so even when you say that you support tenants' rights, like, it's hard to trust you because you're allied with developers, and they're just out to make a profit, and they're speculating, and they're selling things at, you know, like a speculative price. Like, I mean, so, like... The word speculative is not terribly helpful in any of that. It's very shady. It's very, like, malicious sounding. And I I don't think it really reflects, like, the way that, like, people do things. That said, it's hard for me to trust, you know, anti-displacement advocates and tenants advocates who align themselves with homeowners, either in policy, which you see, you know, disingenuously with some of the, like, Michael Weinstein stuff in California. But in other parts of the world, I think it goes back to that you know, you know you've made it when you can be as exclusive as, you know, some of these neighborhoods that you're not allowed to live in. And it's very, very challenging for me to, you know, not just like react like really strongly to, to the to the like, well, Yimbis are allied with developers. And it's like, well, you're allied with homeowners. You know, you you ideologically align, you know, like people who ideologically align with some of that like exclusive sort of language and that like exclusive sort of outlook or like this kind of like anti-growth, like we should preserve our community. You know, I understand how that can come like very differently from historically marginalized groups. And I do want to be sensitive to that. I wish we could have more robust conversations about that. But, (laughs) you know, if, if, you know, you're going to borrow some of the language from people who are basically willing to just like disembowel, like not just SB 50, but a whole ton of tenant protections at the state level, Um, you know, that makes it, you know, I think that there's distrust on both sides for a reason. Um, and I, you know, I come back to William Fischel's home voter hypothesis all of the time. I think that that's a really powerful and really useful way of treating stuff is that people vote in their interests. And so when they're property holders, they vote to protect their property. I, uh, well, you know, this, my next big book project or my next big series of articles is, is on housing, people's attitudes on housing development and development of their communities. The, uh, and, and then build the Bill Fischel, the home voter hypothesis, which argues that effectively, you know, people's behavior can be uh, ascribed to their protection of their home value. I, you know, I think that that's true up to a point. Um, uh, or certainly, you know, the things that they want in their neighborhoods are things that typically raise their home values. I think is maybe a better way to say this. However... Uh, I think one of the one of the one of the issue, one of the challenges with framing everything in terms of their financial interests and protecting their financial interests is that there's you know there's some there's some sense that you know if if you did upzone somebody's parcel 
they would be able to sell that to a speculator for a massive amount of money potentially. NIMBYs are leaving a lot of money on the table. Yeah. Well, that's and that and I think is where the the home voter hypothesis breaks down a touch, and that it, it actually isn't just about money. It's that you know people obviously don't want to see their home values crater and and lose a lot of money in their nest egg. Uh, however, they. Um, I think that you know, and they're risk averse, uh, but they want uh, what they want is they want to protect their. Uh, one of my colleagues used this term, and I think I've decided to adopt it for the, my next book, book project: is their habitus, their the place where they are, and whether they are anti gentrification activists or folks who want to protect the Palo Alto Village, they want to protect their habitus, um, whether that's. You know, not having uh, you know yuppie art studios and yoga studios in their neighborhood, or um, or having access to ready parking spaces and not having to wait behind three cars in a line at a stop sign in Palo Alto. Um, these are things that uh, they they feel that their sense of normalcy is is um, is being violated uh, by. By the, by the current state of affairs. You know, people here get very, very angry about traffic, and the homeowners are very angry <laughs> about traffic. Um, is that a thing where they're concerned about traffic because it hurts their home values? No, it's that they, they have to live in it. They, uh, and this is, gets back to this, you know, um, uh, the, the, you know, the growth machine argument and, and the, you know, the idea that homeowners are, uh, are people, you know, people who live in a community have to deal with the use value or the use experience, I should say. <laughs> I don't know. Use, yeah, it's a misapplication of Marxist uh, ideas of uh, exchange and use value. But anyway, we're talking about this uh, idea that homeowners are not are not concerned with making a financial or uh, people who live in a city are concerned with the experience of the city and what they get out of it as, as uh, humans living their lives versus speculators and developers. Yeah. Uh, and that, I think, is uh, the ideological anchor that uh, provides this provides for this alliance between, say, the you know the Crenshaw coalition and the Beverly Hills mayor. Uh, is that you, what you, how you? How you get that uh, forming is that uh, they're all, they're interested in protecting their their neighborhoods as they've lived them. Yeah, that was a much more elegant way of saying something. <laughs> like, but no, I mean, I think about this a lot, right? Because I think this is like that's what makes this so slippery and so hard. Sometimes is like it's a lot easier if you can just attribute it to home values, but really it's like everything values, right? It's like the sort of like you know environment that you're in and this desire. I mean, I've certainly heard this from like neighborhood old timers in a lot of other mm -hmm. places too, where it's like, oh, I work so hard to, you know, fix up my house or be in this community and you know nothing. Like you bought a flip mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, okay. Like that's less reflective of like the home value thing and more of this like really sort of like, it seems like this is just really brittle grasp on like what your neighborhood is. And it, you know, makes me wonder is like how, you know, how did we not just, I know that like homes are really our only good wealth building vehicle so it goes kind of back to that but also like how did we lose so much in sort of our collective polis and collective social life uh that that internal sort of both like home and family and how that extends became just like this like such a thing that we need to preserve i mean i, I tend to look at just kind of what it means for a, a political body and, you know, my ideal of a place where everyone shares and there is no exclusion kind of comes head to head with this idea of you are the stewards of your community. And this applies, I think, across the board in a more or less kind of feudal way. If you were in the suburban area, all the, you know, you have the suburban you know, landlords and, you know, they, they're the lord of their own manor. And but within a city, if people are, you know, marginalized, they kind of can band together to make sure they're the stewards of their neighborhood. And it is the only way they can kind of make sure that they have any power and aren't 
just taken advantage of. And I think across the board, if you say to everyone, it's like, okay, we need to learn to share. The people who are marginalized, you know, mm-hmm. landless people in the city would say, no, we're just going to get suckered. And they're absolutely right. You know, you can't mm-hmm. say, you know, you need to share and we'll make exemptions for, for the you know richer folks out there. And then the richer folks either in aggregate can make this kind of, you know, idea of how they are the stewards and this is this is right and just or they can find exemptions saying like oh yeah i'm on a fixed income you know i can't i can't afford any change and it's just i think saying that people should share is the hardest thing in the world even though i think it is a general universal principle that kind of needs to be taken up to some extent to have any idea of equitable cities but yeah, I, I just don't think we have a good idea of collectivism and what it looks like. And that's I mean, that's like to, you know, like on again, like advocacy and organizing. Right. Like you often need a win to propel things forward. Right. Like you need to achieve something in order to activate your base and to keep them engaged and to say that, like, you have to keep moving with this. And I think that it's been really tough in terms of like pro housing and pro transit organizing because you just get beaten back at every possible turn. And that brings it back to like, yeah, well, when you only are allowed to spend 20% of your federal dollars on public transit, and then the allocation of that is decided by an MPO whose board members are elected officials, which like disproportionately like favors the suburbs, and then like you don't have a lot of wins. And it's really hard then to say like, here is an example of collectivism working and at a broad scale, not at like the community land trust scale, at mm-hmm. like the broad scale. And so like, you, it is really hard to move forward, like without wins, without good examples, and without things that like scale to work for a lot of people. Which is again, like you do need the middle class to make this work. I know SB fifty got plenty of criticism for being like for the middle, like quote unquote for the middle class and not for mm-hmm. anybody else. And it's like, okay, it's one bill. <laughs> you know, first of all, it's one bill. Um, but you can make that, you can lob that criticism at a lot of stuff. Is that like it's only for like you know X slice of the population. Well, like, can you make it as broad as possible? Because, like, we need some examples of, like, stuff working well for a lot of people to move this forward. And, like, that's what's really hard to me about things like the Green New Deal and things like public transit and things like housing is that, like, we don't have a lot of wins to point to. We don't have a lot of good examples of housing that's built well for a variety of incomes that allows people to move in and out of it. We don't have examples. People ask me all the time for cities, examples of cities that are doing equitable economic development. There are none, (laughs) Um, you know, and, and so like, that's really tough. I mean, so that's where I kind of have to have like the stupid, like idealism in the back of my brain to just be like, we can do this. And I want a really good example. Um, You know, that's why my organization, like we wrote an endorsement for SP 50 because I was like, I need something to take to lawmakers in DC to say that we can, like somebody else has done this because they're all lemmings and they just follow each other. So like I needed something badly to say like this worked and the world didn't end like, and we just moved forward. And so like, how do you I don't know how you do a lot of this work without examples. Um, but we're going to ha- that's what we're going to have to do. And um, so n- not only do people like lose and we lose that sense of like collectivism and we don't have good examples of it. Like it makes it very hard to like present that other world that is supposedly possible. If you want the left to be excited, you I think they, they don't want any kind of win less than do a red Vienna. And I think it really says like how much 
small wins it takes to get up to any kind of level of something you can be proud of. And it, it makes it sound like, oh, yeah, if you just do one nice initiative, you can, you can get there and make a sustainable thing. And, yeah, it's it's very hard to try to get this momentum. Um, I, I tend to be cynical, maybe saying, like, the only way you do it is by saying you find kind of the most well-off, you know, kind of privileged, you know, exclusive home ownership, and you kind of peel it back. And that's why I feel like fight against Palo Alto is good because everybody in California hates Palo Alto for being, you know, like Beverly Hills, the, the just the most mm-hmm. out there, just extreme. Like everybody agrees. Boy, it's like not in our neighborhood, but Palo Alto, they deserve, they deserve everything. And I, I mean, and I guess in my dream of dreams, I really think of, oh, if you want to win for collectivism, you should fight for getting homeownership rates down down everywhere get them down as far as you can i mean this is my own kind of weird skewed mindset on what success is but i mean i think that is definitely against the ethos of what what we're aiming for <laughs> i think you know there's I, i've been thinking a lot about these questions as i as i work through putting together putting together the outline for my for my second book project i think one of the things that i've that i've grappled with and you know again speaking to this idea of people wanting to protect their their habitus their 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 place of residence and having a sense of community and you know so um uh uh you know so a usc professor uh whose name is just drawing a complete blank on on me right now uh has has criticized the mb movement for not not taking into account that community is a real thing um, that people care about. Um, now, you know, when I think about Palo Alto, I think there are different different versions of it. There are the people who made a lot of money in tech about 30 years ago who think that now all the new people are coming in are horrible. Um, and uh, and then and then there are you know there are people like my upstairs neighbor Ruth, who is a retired kindergarten teacher. Her husband was a firefighter. He was active in the residentialist movement in the early 60s. You know, they have a little ranch house that they bought probably in 19 late 60s. They are, um, uh, uh, you know, and, and which they which she continues to own. Uh, she he he passed away and she remarried and um, a, a professor uh, a retired professor from Stanford and is now my upstairs neighbor in our condo development, uh, and uh, and she inherited the condo. So she she owns two homes in Palo Alto. She's a retired school teacher. Um, that's where people have to put their money in a place like this. She can't very easily sell her $2 million ranch house in Palo Alto. And where's she going to go under Prop 13? She's going to spend $40,000 a year on property taxes with her teacher's pension. So there are a lot of people like that where I think a lot of the broad brushing, when you when you broad brush places and you say, well, here are all these privileged people in these places. Well, I will say, know? if I look at someone like that, I look at someone who for decades has failed to make room for others. So in my mind, if Ruth gets kicked out of her home and there's no, no place for her, <laughs> serves her right, you know? It's her own fault. Well, I mean, I think, you know, I have a lot of issues with also like the word community, right? Because uh-huh. like, because it's like, and that's not necessarily your use of it, but I do have, I, I have wrangled with this for a long time, especially from the sort of like social justice perspective of community, because what does it mean to make a community? And in practice, how does that work? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I would say that like often um, we have, you know, we use community to mean a sort of dis- a, an imagined sort of disadvantaged, vulnerable, um, morally right and authentic sort of group of people that I don't think is like is 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 kind of 
are ideal, right? And that's when we talk about like, you know, SP50 possibly displacing people, we're thinking about sort of like rendering to shreds these like spaces where you have multi-generational families and that there's a lot of like mm-hmm. communication in the public space and stuff like that. So where people aren't commoditized. People are treated <laughs> yeah, people as people. Are, people are people and it's authentic and true and real. I think communities are a lot harder than that. Well, it's social capital <laughs> yeah. is what you're talking about. Yes. And it's real. Um, yes. And it's measurable. Yeah. And I, yeah. I don't want to say that that stuff doesn't exist. I do want to say it, that, How is like, it measurable? Well, just, I mean, there's all sorts of ways that it's been measured over time. Uh, you know, people, generalized trust among neighbors, uh, people's willingness to exchange, engage in exchange with neighbors outside of a formal economic context, uh, lending a hand with not, not, not expecting any reciprocity. These are things that happen in high social capital places. Now, you can take issue with how these things get operationalized. What is one of the major benchmarks of, 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 Social capital, it's residential stability, and and so and so you know, and whether that's renters or owners, um, and and if Joshua McCabe or Brian McCabe at uh, at Georgetown has done some great work on this, so. But but the I think the agenda of both sides, whether that's on, on the NIMBY or YIMBY movement, or including the uh, sort of uh, tenant activist advocate groups. Um, uh, doesn't uh, doesn't acknowledge the value of this enough. Yeah, and I, I agree with that. I think my sort of tension with that is that, like, that is real and it is very true, and I want to make space for it, and we should figure out ways to, like... Like, I think often we talk about, like, people glom on to, like, historic preservation as a way to, like, mm-hmm. preserve that, but that doesn't really work because those policies only preserve buildings and not where people live. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of complications there. But I would say that, like... In as much as you have sort of like criticism of like Yimbis saying that like, you know, they need to be mindful of like the community. I think one of the really hard things, like that's hard for like other sides to hear because they're experiencing their own form of community and their own sort of social reciprocity in a way that they may not have in other ways. And so like, I think it just like there's communities in a lot of spaces and they function in a lot of different ways. And like it does get futile really quickly because like there is a sense of like belonging to some sort of in-group <laughs> um, that is like really tough to tease out. And so I see, I think you see like communities like on like a lot of different sides and like they're smaller and larger than we expect, <laughs> um, if that makes mm-hmm. any sense. Um, but I think about that a lot is that like, you know, the things that I consider myself a part of in the terms of like various groups, you know, I'm sure I had to do this exercise as an undergrad where it's like you write down like what different groups you're a member of, right? <laughs> and for everybody, that looks really, really different. Um, and that makes like both political engagement really difficult, especially if you have kind of a disproportionate like one party system, which is definitely like David Schleicher's work, which I'm a huge fan of. Mm-hmm. Um, is that like if you only have one party, it's really hard for those ideologies to like exist in public um, because like you don't have that battle at the ballot box basically over like what is that preferred path. Um, so I don't yeah I want to like don't I I don't ever want to limit community to sort of that like somewhat idealized romanticized thing while also making space for like this is real and there are high social capital places where like you do see that sort of like neighborly interface how do we enable more people to have that um I don't think we achieve that through exclusion (laughs) 
We have been talking for a very long yes. time. I think I think we need <laughs> yes. to uh, final thoughts and then uh, that wrap up here. Uh, and any any final thoughts for the road? You just had a thought there, so why don't you? What, what, <laughs> what's on your mind? What's one last thing you want to share uh, before we wrap up here? Well, we didn't have a chance to talk a lot about the Green New Deal, uh, and I was if it's going to wrap things up or uh, just open up a new can of worms. Uh, <laughs> but I but I but I I'd say we we we've actually had, I think had a really wonderful frank discussion here about the the challenges to, to pursuing uh, what might be called a progressive urban agenda and pro-environmental urban agenda uh, that it, it's it's very hard and it's uh, um, it's much harder than just laying out a list of things that you would like to see happen which is basically what this Green New Deal agenda sheet was all about um, I mean compared to like other leftist wins like gay marriage or something that is very easy and you can kind of, I mean relative of what do you want? You can write it on a page and say you want this. It's. I mean, we can't even agree on what a left urban agenda is. It's incredibly difficult. Right. My my and my concern is, uh, and, and I think the one one insight to be gained from my book is that. Um, you know, so some of the things that happened as a result of the high, uh, the building of the interstate highway system and the, the you know the federal highway program were may have been intended, but there were a lot of consequences that were unintended. When you start to throw a lot of money just out into the ether and uh, and and it gets or you throw throw a bunch of money to state governments to build construction projects, you don't know how that's going to work out necessarily, and and as if and it's and you don't have any central control over it. Well, what's going to happen? If uh, we have some ma massive new infrastructure bill that is, uh, you know, that you know maybe is uh, primarily about job creation and then secondarily about a pro-environmental agenda, is that going to be good for the environment? Is it going to be good when we are when a bunch of solar panel and wind farm builders are um, taking their paychecks and going and spending them on pickup trucks and hamburgers at the local restaurant? Is that going to be? Is that going to reduce our carbon emissions when we do that? But that's we we, do we and 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 has has that actually been calculated out? Um, I think there's a real tension between this idea of uh, you know building infrastructure, uh, much as we did in, at mid-century, building infrastructure to juice the economy, uh, and satisfying these goals that we have of uh, of achieving environmental protection and conservation. And uh, you know the rhetoric, of course, is well. We just do everything with solar and EV and all these other things, and technology will fix the problem. Uh, we've heard that rhetoric before, and we, we've heard it. And we heard it on the highway system itself, uh, and now, and, and now, in adopting these metaphors of these previous efforts to build infrastructure, we're hearing it again from people who honestly should know better. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm eager to find out what happens next along these lines. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I love this stuff, and I think part of, um, you know why I care so much is because like I do really think that that better world is possible and I think it does mean acknowledging some both reliance but also like acceptance of other people and you just run into that in like 18 different ways right like I think a really powerful line in your book Clayton is about how like highways enabled people to choose more places and that like some of that sort of you know that choice like looks like politicization politicization looks like looks can like look like it's like a skewed decision making but that like fundamentally like we opened up a lot of choices with highways but i don't think that that's the only way that we have to do that and i like i i just would love to see us try more and try some of the really basic things that i think could work and that we've moved really really far away from um which is like 
living near each other and providing decent basic services and having like sort of a like robust engagement in our political process. Um, I feel very much that like the work that I do is just a big civic engagement project. I want people to show up to meetings. I want people to vote. Um, You know, we have systems in place. Um, We have an electoral process. We have a legislative process. Um, They're hard, but we know the rules. And, you know, my feeling is that like we could change that. We could do something that is redistributive and collective. And um, I, the last time Mark had me on, I like, there's like a point near the end of the show where like, I'm like almost like screaming, like, we know, we know what to do. We know what the problems are. Like, yeah, we've got, uh, we know, yeah, we do. <laughs> we, when we do. And you know, I, I it's, it's hard um, to know that and to feel very much like you're seeing everything. Like I, I like, I'm, I like, it's this like, personally this is a really challenging space between like being like really excited to see like SB 50 and lots of runner protection bills in California and try to figure out how we could do something like that in the DC region it's like really exciting and like very stimulating to think about and then also it just feels like you're just like putting the marker on the timeline where like we have like we're watching stuff just like move away so I like it's like hard to like exist and be thoughtful about some of this stuff um and I, I get it but um, you know, I I do love this area. I, like, I love the idea of special politics. I think that makes up a lot of what we do. Well, thank you so much, uh, Clayton and Alex, for being here today. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, Thank Mark. you. <laughs> we have been talking to Clayton Nall and Alex Baca all about highways. You can find this episode and everything else at the website seethecat.org. This is a presentation of KZSU, Stanford 89.1.